Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is Canadian writer Sheila Hetty. Hetty is the author of five books, all very different in form and in style. She's written a short story collection, a, a group of modern fables entitled The Middle Stories, a historical novel called Ticknor, and an illustrated book for children, We Need a Horse. Recently, she ventured into nonfiction with her book of conversational philosophy, The Chairs Are Where the People Go, written with her friend Misha Gluberman, which The New Yorker chose as one of the best books of 2011. Sheila Hetty works as interviews editor at The Believer magazine and is here today on Between the Covers to talk about her new book that blurs the boundaries between fiction and memoir entitled How Should a Person Be? Welcome to Between the Covers, Sheila Hetty. Thanks. So... I view your last book, The Chairs of Where the People Go, and your current book as companion pieces in a way. I see they're both playing with form. They both involve collaboration with friends, and uh, they both sort of have a self-help aspect to them. And for our readers who aren't familiar with, with your last book and with this book, uh, The Chairs of Where the People Go is, you call it a book of conversational philosophy, and, and really it is a lot of it is the thoughts of your good friend Misha Gluberman that you then shaped into a book. And the current book, How Should a Person Be, you you populate it with a lot of your friends, and or at least the characters share the same names as, as that of your friends, and the protagonist is shares your name. So I was curious if, if you could um, talk to us about the impetus to writing How Should a Person Be? What, what were you thinking in, in trying to find this form that was fictional, but sort of semi-fictional? Well, first of all, I agree that they are companion pieces. I was writing them at the same time. Um, at different points, I thought that they were the same book, um, and I tried to make them one book. So they really do come out of the same curiosities. And uh, I think that I just wanted to be in the world when I was writing these books. I I wanted to be—I uh, didn't want my writing life to be any different from my— um, social life. I wanted to sort of bring them together. I'd read this book called Otto, uh, called Art and Artist by Otto Rank. Um, he was the psychoanalyst of Henry Miller and Anais Nin, and he broke from Freud. And he had this thing where he said that the problem for the modern artist is that they're always sort of neurotically going back and forth between making art and then life where they collect the experiences. And I thought, well, what if you can what if you and I recognized that in myself, and I thought, what if I can make them one? What if instead of having to write in my room and then go out and collect experiences, what if I can write among people and among my friends and with my friends? And so, what was the actual methodology or the process when you were hanging out with your friends? Were you then uh, recording them, or were you taking notes? And and how did that go over with them? Um, well, I never took notes. I was recording some of our conversations and. Uh, I only did it with those friends who were comfortable with it. Some friends weren't, and so I just <laughs> I didn't use them, and they're not in the book. Um, but um, with Misha, it was more like very structured. He would come over to my house in the mornings, and we would, I he would just talk the chapters to me, and I would type them as he spoke. I I can type pretty quickly, so I would transcribe them as he talked. The other thing is that um, certain things happen in the book that I would say I kind of orchestrated in order to write about them later. So there's a competition between two painters in the book. It's called the Ugly Painting Competition. And there were sort of the seeds of that in my circle of friends, and I really pushed for it to happen because I wanted to write about it and make it real. 
Well, you, you mentioned Otto Rank in the book and here in the interview, and he also said in the future there will be artists but no art. And I really wondered about that when I was reading How Should a Person Be and wondered if that informed the uh, the process of making it because it feels, at least with the fictional Sheila Hetty in the book, that she almost views her friends as the art. And I and I wondered if that was, was something... Um, that helped the book come to be? Um, yeah, it was an idea I was playing around with and trying to think through, like, what does it look like to have artists but no art? You know, and so I was thinking about people like Paris Hilton, like, is she an artist without art? You know, things like that. And um, I guess in the end, I did wind up with a book, which is art, but I was really trying to make it a, a book that also wasn't like art in some way that, and I, it's it's hard to explain, but that was something that I was going for. Yeah, well, I actually found that aspect that you, you bring up here is one of the more impressive things about the book. There's this sense of effortlessness to it. It feels very uncrafted. It feels like you're in the scene with the people as it's happening. And um, I felt very much like I knew your friends and was there. And I know that even though it felt that way, that it must have actually involved quite a bit of craft to pull off that feeling of effortlessness. Yeah, I mean, it took me seven years to write the book. Um, so it, it was a lot of deliberate choices. It was a lot of rewriting. Um, but I did want it to feel lived. I didn't want it to feel like an art object. I wanted it to feel like an experience um, that you were having, that you, the reader, were having alongside the characters or, or in the book. Um, Can you introduce us to the fictional Sheila Hetty and and tell us what um, are some of the concerns of the protagonist in the book? Yeah, I mean, the the main thing that she notices that every time she writes the word soul, she spells it sold, S-O-U-L-D. And this becomes a matter of grave concerns. Like, do I have a soul? Did I never have a soul? Where is it gone? She has a great feeling of emptiness, um, a feeling of not knowing how she should be in the world. If she is a person, if she can call herself a person without knowing what kind of person she is. So the book is really about trying to figure out um, how to, who, who, who she is um, and where this soul is located. And it really seems like, going back to this idea of, of artists and art, and, and maybe even that the artists in this book are the art, it seems like she really invests a lot of esteem in the people she knows. She she feels like she knows nothing, but she almost feels like everyone else knows everything. Yeah, like her best friend, Margot, who in real life is my best friend, Margot Williamson. Um, Margot kind of becomes the ideal. And um, I think Margot bristles against that. And at one point there's a conflict because Margot sort of feels like Sheila is sort of stealing her soul or too much trying to get the answers from her. And that's not a role that Margot ever wanted. In case you just tuned in, you're listening to Between the Covers, and we're talking today with author Sheila Hetty about her new book, How Should a Person Be? So one of the other concerns of, of the fictional Sheila Hetty is the um, the issue of perfection and, and wanting to be an artist, but also not wanting to show any of her ugliness. You mentioned the the ugly comp- the ugly painting competition but it feels like maybe one of the keys to the question in the book or or at least the question how should an artist be is is hidden in the issue around um how do you deal with the risk of being ugly in public yeah and being ugly to yourself in private like i think it's especially for women um 
a big concern, a big concern that everyone wants you to have is how to be attractive, how to be beautiful, how to be an ideal, how to be looked at in such a way that no one sees your ugliness, how to hide it. I mean, that's what all the women magazines are about, how to hide your ugliness. And I just think that in order to understand yourself as a person or to live with any degree of freedom, you have to, you have to accept those parts. You have to accept the fact that people will see those parts. You can't be afraid of them. So for me, this was a real personal issue because I think when I started the book, I still really felt like I had that fear of my own ugliness. And the book was a way of trying to overcome that fear and just say the ugliness, ugliness is no worse than the beauty. It, it's not better to be beautiful than to be ugly. And if people look at you and your career from the outside, much like Sheila looks at her friends and sees perfection, they, they see a person who, who found success quite early. You published your first short story collection at 24, and it was shortly after, I think it was shortly after you published your first stories. Uh, did you ever have experiences of putting something out into the world that, that failed and, and then brought up this sense of, of ugliness that the character is so um, paralyzed by? Yeah, one of my first experiences. Um, I went to theater school when I was 18 in Montreal, a place called the National Theater School, and it's like the, the theater school in Canada. I was, went there as a playwright, and there were three other people in my class, and we each had to sort of write a play that was going to be produced at the end of the year, and I wrote an adaptation of Faust where um, his love interest was a young girl, and it was just really weird. Mephistopheles was Faust's beard. It was just a very... Bizarre. Well, I was influenced by George Buchner and um, other interesting writers, uh, but sort of the, you know, the play had been cast, and uh, there was a little workshop for the teachers, and um, they wouldn't let us put on the play, and they said we'd been working on it all year long, and they said that this play is going to ruin your career. You know, I didn't have a career; I was 18 years old, but they really were kind of disgusted by it, and. I quit school right after that and just thought this is not the place for me. But that was pretty humiliating and that felt really bad and I felt really angry. And um, so, yeah, sort of my first experience was this is not this is not acceptable. It's not palatable. Well, let's give our readers a, a taste of, of what the prose sounds like. Do you have a section you'd like to, to read? Yeah, I, I'll read a, a, a fairly I guess, conventional, just narrative section. A lot of the book is in the first person, Sheila talking to herself. But in this part, it's just a little scene between Margot and Sheila after um, they travel to the Miami uh, art fair together. You know, the whole city's turned into an art fair. And um, uh, Margot, after they return, sends Sheila an email saying, I wish you hadn't bought the same yellow dress as I bought. And she she's pretty pissed off at Sheila. Anyways, um They fall out for a bit, and this is their first interaction after that falling out. I asked her, trying not to let my tears fall, what the big problem had been with me buying the same dress she had bought. She looked out the window, sighed heavily, thought for a bit, then spoke. You know that hotel we stayed at in Miami? Sure. She asked if I remembered how our first night there I noticed a spider on the bathroom wall. I'd forgotten, but now I vaguely recalled. Well, you went to the bathroom, she said. And you saw this daddy long legs there. And I was like, do you want me to throw it out the window? But you said, no, let's keep it. Spiders are good. I would have thrown it out, but you said, let's not. So we agreed that we just didn't want it to end up in our bed. We would keep our bathroom door closed the entire time. That way, the spider would stay in the bathroom and not crawl into our bed, which would be really disgusting. Anyway, she went on, pretty soon you started to like it. You developed feelings for it. Like, whenever you went to the bathroom, you would look for it. And when you spotted it, you'd speak to it. 
Sometimes it was in the tub. Sometimes it was on the ceiling. Sometimes it was sitting on the shower curtain. Then after leaving the bathroom, you would say goodbye and close the door. You ended up becoming pretty affectionate with it. It became like a pet, I offered. I remember that. Not something you could control, but something you could love. But if it had left the bathroom and invaded the bedroom, you probably wouldn't have liked it so much. But keeping it in the bathroom allowed you to love it. Keeping it in there was a sign that you loved it. Right. Then, on our last night there, we forgot to close the bathroom door. We were so drunk. And in the morning, you woke up and it was beside your leg. And without even thinking, you smashed it under your hand. I remember, I said, uneasy. Well, that's like you buying the same dress as me. I'm doing a lot with letting you tape me, but boundaries, Sheila. Barriers. We need them. They let you love someone. Otherwise, you might kill them. When I hear that prose, it comes across, and I'm sure our listeners probably agree with this as well, it comes across as very um, immediate and, and transparent and accessible in a way. But your, your book is also, I think, very experimental and is, is pushing the boundaries of form. What's interesting about that to me is that uh, when people hear the word experimental, they often think of something that is intentionally difficult or uh, potentially obscuring something. Uh, and I, I think it was Misha, I'm, it may have been you in an interview that talked about the root of the word experimental from science. And he brought up the idea that uh, from a science perspective, experimental means doing research and development to uh, get to a goal of producing new knowledge. And it feels to me really like how should a person be, has that as an enterprise. I'm curious about that for you because I know you've studied art history and you've studied philosophy, and it brought me to the idea that with this book that contains both art, art theory and philosophy in it, whether you were influenced by any theoretical sensibility when you put it together. And, and one last thing on that note is that here in Portland, one thing that's really big, and maybe it's big in Toronto as well, is this idea of art as social practice. And there's even a master's degree program here in that. Miranda July was very big in that when she lived here. And, and I think of people like Miranda July and, and other places, Sophie Cal in France, and people who are doing things that are uh, multidisciplinary uh, and also that seem to be informed by a philosophical stance. Is that true about uh, how should a person be? Well, that's definitely big in Toronto, too. I mean, uh, I don't know if you know the artist Darren O'Donnell, but um, he's a friend of mine, and his work is very much in that vein, and I think he's the best artist I, you know, in Toronto right now. And um, So I, I love that kind of work. I My heart is there with everyone doing that kind of work, and my heart has always been with um, those artists who you would call experimental. Um and I, I do believe that the artist should sort of originate things from really within themselves and not be imitating other artists um, as much as possible. Um, I don't know who, who I would say my, you know, I, I don't read a lot of theory actually, but um, I look at a lot of art and, um, but the accessibility of this book was something that I wanted. I mean, I have both things in me. Like I, I want to be able to understand something often right away um, because to me the most interesting thing in the world is other people and with another person people aren't obscure like you see somebody and you instantly have this like feeling for who they are and it's not hard it's not hard for me anyways to like encounter people and I kind of wanted the book to be like that I wanted to be like you're encountering a person and it's I love experimental literature but I I wanted it to be, um, I didn't want it to be forbidding. 
I wanted to be uh, a parent. Well, it's interesting because it feels to me when I was thinking about this book, I couldn't really think of where to place this among other books specifically. It felt like the conversations it was having was with people who were not just writers. Like when you think of Miranda July or or Sophie Cowell, they're doing performance art. They may be doing film. There's there's, I I find it easier to place you in that world than in the world of novelists. And I didn't know if that was something you intended or just happenstance around um, where you've arrived? Um, Well, yeah, I was really fed up with novels when I was writing this book. I didn't, I wasn't reading any. I just thought they were so lame. Like I just couldn't bring myself to read a novel. It just felt so, they all felt so fake to me. And I don't feel that way today. Like I have such a hunger to read novels these days, but I felt like that at the time. I I could read self-help books. I could read the newspaper. There's all sorts of things I could read, but not fiction. Um, So, so the, I think, uh, I think what you say makes sense. Like I wasn't modeling this on novels for sure. I wanted to ask you a question that um, you once asked Mary Gatesgill in in an interview in the Believer magazine, and it has to do with this sense that hap- that in the book around um, the character Sheila not knowing if she knows how to be and investing a lot in other people. And when you were asking Mary in the Believer, you 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 brought up Henry Miller. Um, who was getting psychoanalyzed by the psychoanalyst Otto Rank that you mentioned earlier, who said when he was younger that he was mainly imitating other people. And then he found uh, a way, like Sheila eventually does in the book, to figure it out. He found what he called the vital thing. And I was curious if you feel like you've found the vital thing and what that vital thing is that for Henry Miller ended up changing the way he wrote. And so he felt like he was no longer searching for it outside of himself. That's a really good question. Um, do you mean like the vital thing in this book or in general as an artist or with all my books? Like just... Uh... I would think, it, well, both if you have an answer, but I was thinking more in a general sense as an artist. Okay. You know, when you, I'm sure that you see some sort of evolution and growth as you move from project to project as you try to figure out what is your voice. And I would have guessed that that was less clear for you when you first started. Yeah, I think that the, the first thing that comes to mind is for me, the vital thing is like absolutely trusting myself and um, even trusting the things that just seem foolish, like like to to in every moment just think if you want to read uh, the seven habits of highly effective people instead of um, Don Quixote, like read it, you know, there's probably something in there that you need right now. Um, don't think that's lowbrow or that's, you know, you don't have to know why you're attracted to certain things. Like when I started walking around with my tape recorder, I didn't know what was going to come of it, but I just sort of trusted that, okay, you want to do that probably for some reason that, that you don't even understand, so do it. So for me, without that vital thing, I would not be able to make anything. In case you just tuned in, you're listening to Between the Covers, and we're talking today with Canadian writer Sheila Hetty about her new book, How Should a Person Be? So one of the things that I found interesting is your book definitely intentionally conflates the world of fiction and nonfiction. Your characters are based but not entirely um, uh, evoking the the world of your friends, and, and your protagonist is, is Sheila Hetty. Um, when when I read interviews of you around this, you often seem exasperated when people bring up the question, what is the difference between 
you and your character. And yet, at the same time, it seems like the book is inviting the question in a certain way. So what I wonder is, is the, is the question behind the question really, are you trying in earnestness to capture the way you are in real life in the book, knowing that you're not going to be able to capture it entirely? Or are you intentionally distorting things for narrative effect or for other reasons? Um, the second. Like, I feel like... Um... I don't feel like I'm a, a perfect example of the contemporary human. Um, and I really wanted to think about what I considered the perfect example of the contemporary human. So, for instance, like Sheila and Margot do drugs in the book. I don't think I've ever done drugs with Margot in real life. But I really wanted her to have that um, that that desire for oblivion. Um, I don't have that. Uh, I and I, but I think that is something that. That, that people have that I find interesting. Um, yeah, so so I was trying, I, was, I wasn't trying to just depict me. Another, another thing that I found interesting about, about the book was the power that narrative can have over us, not just the narrative that we tell ourselves, but the narrative that other people tell about us. And, and Sheila Hetty in the book has a boyfriend she breaks up with, and I think it's her high school boyfriend, who then goes ahead and writes a play about her where she ends up destitute and miserable. And it seems like the fact that he's created this narrative sort of haunts her, almost like it has a power over her because it's been written. And that part of the journey of the book for the main character is to figure out a way both to get on out from under that narrative, but also to replace it with her own narrative. Is that something you would you would say is true? Yeah, for sure. That's a huge that's a huge um, struggle in the book for her not to feel like she's living in his story. And I think stories kind of like have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you like this is the way you're going to end up, um, you're lucky if you can forget that. This brings us back to the issue of gender. Um, we have this character who's creating a narrative for her, and she def- and Sheila definitely has this sense of men in general trying to tell her how to be, to teach her, to create a narrative for her rather than um, just be there and supporting her, finding her own narrative. And it, it, it brought me back to this idea, and you, you brought this up earlier around women and the issue of how should, how should a person be, or, and in this case, how should a woman be. The idea of the high concept, big idea novel, we normally think of as a novel written by men, or at least the ones that come to mind most, these these big tomes. And yet this book definitely feels like a high concept, big idea novel that is really distinctly feminist and feminine. And I wondered if it's being received that way or not. I know that there's parts of the book uh, with some really uh, risque um sex scenes between someone she's very passionate about. But really, it seems like at the core is this friendship between her and Margot. And the love there feels to me stronger than anything that that exists between her and men. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how it's really hard to say how your own book is being received. One sees it so differently from other people. But, uh, you know, the book has been compared a lot to um, this TV show Girls. And I think that's like, I'd like I like that. I love that show. But I'd like to see, like you say, like people compare it to those novels of ideas. That that's really what it is. And I, 
I feel like the philosophical aspect of the book is the is a hugely important part, you know, part of the book, and um, and I do think like the a book about a platonic love affair is something I I I I was hoping f- for um, you know people to have a conversation around because all our books, you know, so much of our art is about romance between men and women, or you know. And, you know, unfortunately, like not enough about women and women or, you know, homosexual love. But even there's there's that. Not, and there isn't so much about friendship. And I think friendship is um, for many of us like the deepest love we'll ever experience. But we don't have this culture in which we value it as much. If you're somebody that breaks up your marriage, but you still have your f- deep friends, uh, you're still looked at as somebody who who can't really love. And I just I don't know why we pr- so have to privilege it so much over friendship. That's interesting because the relationship with Sheila and Margot, even though it's fraught with a lot of difficulty, it feels like at its core, it really is this great sense of gratitude that they've found each other. And it and it does seem like a real deep and dimensional form of love. Yeah, it's a romance. like, a, And I think there's romance and friendship for sure. Yeah. Yeah. A- another part of the book that was, was really charming for me was Sheila's... Um, keeps coming back to the uh, story of the Exodus and and sort of this compare and contrast between Jesus and Moses. And it's, a, it's, it's an encapsulation a little bit about her issue around perfection and ugliness as well, because she can't find Jesus as a, as a model because he's just too perfect. And I just love the, the part about Moses where she, when she realizes that he's killed somebody, that he stutters, that when he's asked to lead the people, he wants to shirk his duty and give the responsibility to his brother. And she's like, yes, this is the person who can lead me. Like, this is, this is, uh, this is the model, a person who's imperfect. And I was curious if, as, as a Jewish writer, if, if you saw any, um, anything about that in, in your writing, uh, uh, this idea of, of taking imperfection or taking something that is not idealized and, and turning that into an asset in a sense. Yeah, well, I mean, that's where humor lies, right? Like, I think Jesus isn't a very funny figure, but Moses, if you really look at Moses, he's very funny. Like, forgot to say, you know, do this, and for him to say, oh, ask my brother instead of me, like, that's, he sounds like a comedian, you know? Like, um, I think that there's no there's no humor in perfection, perfection. There's only humor in imperfection. And there's humor in somebody striving for perfection, but there's no humor in somebody reaching it. That's a good point. So, so tell us what you're working on these days. Do you are, are you too wrapped up in in promotion for how should a person be, or are you are you working on a new project? Well, it's hard for me to work on anything in a consistent way because I'm traveling around and, um, but uh, I'm I'm having lots of thoughts and uh, I find that you know at night alone in a hotel room that's, you know, for ten minutes before I go to sleep, it's a nice time to think and. Um, but, do, you, do you have a gut feeling about what you want to do differently? You know, sometimes someone writes a big book and they want to write something small or fiction versus nonfiction. Do you have any sort of um, unformed but instinct around this? Well, yeah. I mean, I feel like this book kind of splintered my world in some way. So it used to be that I would just always think about what's the next thing I'm going to work on. And now I have like 12 things I want to work on. And then they all seem like different facets of myself. And they all seem so interesting. And they're all different from each other. And something's happened. Like I... I really, one of the things I wanted to kill in myself when I wrote this book was 
this modernist artist. And to me, the modernist is the one who tries to create one great monument, right? And I, that, I guess it worked because I'm not thinking that way anymore. I just think about the things that would be fun and interesting for me to do. And maybe you'll luck out in the sense that you do something that's fun and interesting and you make something as good as how should a person be. <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, that's a nice thing to say. It was great having you on Between the Covers today. Thanks very much. We were talking today with Sheila Hetty, the author of How Should a Person Be? You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. <laughs>